When we talk about entrepreneurs, we often focus on those starting a company to pursue a new idea or invention. However, some entrepreneurs look at existing companies with a fresh perspective and see overlooked growth opportunity. In this episode, you'll hear from Boaz Rahav, co-founder of Hypersonic Force, a procurement and analytics company specializing in finding spare parts for defense, aerospace, industrial and communication products. Boaz first came to the United States as an Israeli government economist and later spent 20 years working on Wall Street. During this time, he started his entrepreneurial journey by creating one of the first index funds and later started a business accumulating private company data and research. Wanting a change, Boaz decided to look outside of financial services and spotted an opportunity to transform an existing company by infusing technology and a new operating platform, thus creating hypersonic force. He is a New York Tech alum, receiving his MBA in 1998, and is currently on the School of Management's Executive Committee. Boaz, welcome to our podcast series. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. In reading your bio and your background, it appears that you're truly an active investor in private companies, and you also do other things. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Again, thanks for having me on your show. Super excited. We'll do my best to keep it as engaging and as interesting for your listeners as possible. Mm -hmm. So let's start with my accent, right? So I wasn't born in South Boston, as you can tell. (laughs) Israeli started my training in the Israeli capital market somewhere in the mid uh, early 90s as a derivative trader. I happened to be sent to New York as the chief economist for the Israeli government it was a complete transformation for me, moving from being a capital market player, a derivative trader to a broader sense of macroeconomy issues. Came to New York in the mid 90s. That's what brought me to NYIT, where I completed together with my wife. We did an MBA program. So super exciting. Somewhere in the mid 90s, both happy to report that both graduated at the GPA of four, which make it an eight combined. At the time, it was the first time for the NYIT, I think, to see such an odd couple like us. And since then, I spent quite a lot of time in financials, kind of extending on my original background. I was working for large organizations, smaller banks. And I came to realize that in my core, my DNA is more an entrepreneur. I left my day job and started two or three different businesses within financial universe. You know, people think that financials is a stagnant environment, and it's not. There is a lot of innovation, a lot of new products, new technologies within financials. So I was blessed to be involved with a couple, two or three Super interesting ventures. One was creating one of the first index funds, and that was in the early 2000s, and then selling that business to a French bank, and then moving to private transactions, private company research, which was also pretty neat. Uh, sold that business to Oppenheimer, which is a U.S. kind of a mid-sized U.S. investment bank. I would say a decade ago, or maybe seven, eight years ago, I came to realize that I'm ready mentally and physically to take up on new challenges. And I started to look for opportunities outside of the financial world, which led me to co-found a real estate technology company, which does some very interesting stuff in creating a tape or creating a clean data for real estate transactions, which is not that obvious and not that trivial. Talk a little bit about one of the companies that you founded when you were in the financial market was Greencrest Capital. And 
What I found interesting about it was that you sort of recognize this emerging asset class that we call stock and private companies in the secondary direct market. So investors could buy directly into companies without going through a venture firm or private equity firm. That must have given you a lot of insight into how private firms were operating. And was that part of the allure that you saw that you wanted to get into being an active investor in private companies? It's an interesting point, John, and I believe that might be one of the reasons that pushed me kind of to focus and be more involved with private transactions. My belief throughout the years was to try and cut the middleman. You know, when we created index funds, and that was over 20 years ago, which was not that popular as it is today with all the ETFs and the index vehicles that are pretty much dominating the market today, was the idea that it's hard enough to figure out if the market is going to go up or down, and then it's hard enough to figure out which industries, which verticals, make sense to invest into the future. So I, I truly believe that investing, cutting the middleman, cutting the portfolio manager, cutting all the layers of fees makes sense for most people. In private transactions, we also thought that there are quite a lot of opportunities out there. You know, VCs are great and private equity investments are great, but there is also opportunity to take a stake in directing some exciting private companies, allowing people to do that. Yeah, so it's all it's all part of the journey. And at the end of the day, Greencrest was sold to Oppenheimer that was at the time interested in expanding their investment banking into private transactions. Mm. So that was a good fit. What I found fascinating, you mentioned it earlier, your investment and a co-founder in hypersonic force. On the website, it says, our focus is resolving un procurable solutions. So that means that you can't find it, but we're going to get it for you. Tell me what you saw in that business that you found interesting. And what did you bring to that business that maybe wasn't there? And how did you improve the operations? Well, John, I commend you for doing the research. You definitely can prepare for the call. And I appreciate that. Hypersonic is an interesting story. Again, going back to a childhood friend of mine that ran a family business, pretty successful in providing spare parts for the DOD for quite a long time. And when I left Wall Street and I was looking for other opportunities, we spent time together. I was expressing my desire to find a new business to found. And he he expressed his desire to pin off a new company out of the family business, feeling that there is a room for integrating new technologies that will allow the DOD to find obsolete parts to outsource parts that are very, very hard to source unless you really build a new global technology research tool that will allow for users or the DOD, the Coast Guard or the Air Force or the Army to be able to identify those parts. So that was the genesis of me thinking about it, kind of running the numbers, Mm. figuring out that it's an interesting business, funding it. And four years later, the company has been growing rapidly. We have expanded to all branches of the DOD and recently also to the UN and the World Bank and a few other very interesting government and quasi-government agencies. And the platform as it is, it's a deep research tool that compiles suppliers, spare parts, inventories on a global level mm. using some interesting vectors and metrics to, to try and identify where are those elusive parts hiding. Stay in a warehouse in Barcelona, is there with a distributor maybe in Johannesburg in South Africa, How do you price it? How do you source it? How do you inspect it? How do you make sure it gets to the end user in the best condition possible in a way also that will 
meet very rigorous government requirements. I found it fascinating, and I have a very tiny bit of my history was working for a defense contractor here on Long Island. First off, most people don't realize that aircraft, as an example, and I'm going to go back to World War II, the vintage Douglas DC-3s still fly. I mean, those are 80, 90-year-old aircraft that are still being flown around the world, and they need spare parts. And the government tries uh, desperately to keep things in use. And at some point, things go out of production, and you need a company like a hypersonic, I guess, to go out and find those parts. And you want to get those original OEM parts because there's just too many counterfeit items out there or something that might have been used, cleaned up, put back on the shelf. So you just don't know what you're buying. And it sounds like you've come up with a way of, of identifying, finding them, sourcing them properly, and pricing them properly for just virtually as a global marketplace. So, John, you hit on all the right points. <laughs> so it's exactly that. Many are just not aware, including myself, up until a few years back, mm-hmm. that there are vehicles, there are parts, whether they are parts of a submarine periscope, whether they are parts of a landing gear, whatever it is, that are no longer supported by an OEM, any OEM. But those vehicles are still in service and will stay in service for the next decade. Now the question is, okay, that pin is need to be replaced on that spare spring, need to be replaced. What do we do? And you're saying problem of reliability. How do I know that I got those what can be very simplistic spare parts, but they go into crit- mission critical items like a submarine, like an airplane. How do we make sure that those parts are meeting all the standards? How do we make sure when we source it and they are exactly as advertised. So these are all the problems we are solving. Mm. So when we buy parts for the DOD, we learn later that those parts may end up in Spain or in New Zealand or in Colombia or in a hundred different other nations where uh, that utilize U.S. lines to buy spare parts for their own U.S. manufactured items. So it's really not, it's a DOD, but it's really a global supply chain going to global list of end users, which make it even more interesting. It's a fascinating business. And again, this is not a business that very few people know about unless you happen to be in the industry. So when you're looking at private companies to invest in, what are you looking for? What are some of the elements that you think are critical in your investment decision? That's a terrific question. I'm not sure I have the right answer, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I think you need to differentiate when looking at private companies. I think you need to be able to clearly define, is that an existing business that's going to be expanded in a different way? Or is that a completely brand idea? It's completely fresh and all odds that will be that that business will fail, but I'm willing to take that risk. So you need Mm. to say, okay, I'm going to do it if it's a new idea, and there is probably a 90% chance we're going to fail. But it's okay. I may have fun. I may learn something new. And there is a 10% that's going to be a great success. So you need to approach it like that. And that should not deter a person from investing in a company which is completely fresh and new, completely new and completely cutting edge, or even try to start one itself. If you look at investing in a more mature private company or a spin-off that takes a different direction, then it's more about analysis, right? Then it's more about, okay, what is the company doing today? 
how can it improve what it's doing today? Does it make sense? There is more data to analyze. Right. There are more resources to view, but it's a completely different universe if you're looking at a completely innovative startup with a fresh idea or an expansion and improvement upon an existing company. When someone comes to you with an idea, they flush out a business plan, and they want to make a pitch, what are some of the things that you expect to see from that pitch? Or what are the things that maybe you would recommend that a budding entrepreneur should have at their fingertips when they come to see you? So I think that when you, when you look at investing in entrepreneurs, I think the character and the individuals are key. It's interesting but I don't know if that's because of COVID or because of so many other elements. I just read the statistic the other day that the average age of a founder today is 46. It's <laughs> interesting. And super interesting, right? So everybody kind of thinking about an average entrepreneur being a 20, 22, 23, 19-year-old guy or girl. But it seems that VCs or early-stage investors are identifying the fact that having experience, life experience, work experience, any other relevant experience matters. Hmm. So there are more and more people that they are mentally and physically ready to leave the workforce. They are kind of pretty much done with nine to five and they want to take their own path. They are willing to sacrifice the risk. They are willing to sacrifice a regular paycheck, but they want to curve their own path. And for that, so more and more startups, so to say, mm -hmm. are now being led and being founded or championed by more mature individuals. So you look at the person, you look at the background, you look at their accomplishments, you look at how well are they familiar with the space they try to conquer. Like, uh, do they have an experience or is it someone that comes from completely different industry? By the way, it's not a deal killer because many times the great innovations are coming from disruptors of people coming from completely different industries to change another industry, which sure. is great. But you look at the characters, you look at achievement, you look at accomplishments, you look at seriousness and all. And, and you look at also dedication, like how dedicated the person is. If the guy is saying or the girl, hey, I have my day job, but I have this idea that I'm going to run in the evening and see if it's going to work, it's probably not the best path right. forward, right? So you want to see someone totally committed, someone going all in and saying, hey, you know what? I can live off my savings for the next 12 months. I accumulated this amount of money, and I'm risking it all, and I have 12 months run, and I have to make it happen, right? So you want to see that level of commitment, that level of passion. If that individual also comes from the industry or comes with strong credentials, then you definitely want to pay attention. I think that having a skin in the game is super important. And again, a skin in the game can be a $10,000 investment or a $10 million investment really related on the situation and the opportunity. But you definitely want to see the founders having skin in the game. Absolutely. Some of the VCs that we've spoken to over the years have said that they're looking to the individual. Is this person truly committed? What is the problem they're trying to solve? Are they passionate about that issue? Do they come from the industry or do they have the really the wherewithal to make this go? And I guess that comes down to a question of, so in general, what advice do you have for a budding entrepreneur out there? What do you suggest somebody that really wants to go into business for themselves? And I bring that up in the context that according to several recent articles, there's been an all time high in the number of new business startups in the United States. And especially since the pandemic hit, so many people feel as though, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to go out and do something on my own. We live in 
very exciting times, right? So mm-hmm. it's challenging and it's daunting from one hand, but the yin and yang, it also provides tremendous opportunities. So COVID, everybody kind of moving, working from home. A lot of people had to change careers or have more free time or came to realize that actually working from home is not a bad idea. The environment and the tools available for entrepreneurs today are just remarkable in your ability to take a business and bring it to market and make it look like a real company in really light speed. Right. So that's that. I think that entrepreneurs need to really search deep and answer the question, am I an entrepreneur? And that goes mm-hmm. with the good and for the bad. And everybody's kind of focusing on the upside, right? They're focusing right. on that individual that score big, right? He had a $100 million exit or a billion dollar exit or whatever it is. But they have to realize that usually it's not a case. It's usually you need to fail. Again, I read somewhere that a successful entrepreneur on average has about 20 failures in his kind of past history before the success came, which is mind-blowing. But Mm. entrepreneurs are also those that went out and opened up a lemonade stand when they were 12. Right, You try a lot of things, a lot of things, and success eventually will arrive, but it is a pretty daunting and challenging and stressful task. So someone needs to ask themselves first, am I ready? Am I mentally ready? If I just had my newborn? So a person needs to be honest with themselves, whether it's the right path, whether they can withheld the stress and the lack of transparency on how tomorrow is going to look like. I think that's key. But if someone says, you know what, I'm at the age, I'm at a point of my career, a point of my life, mm-hmm. when I think I can make it, I have a little bit cash aside, or I'm still single, and I'm still living with my parents, whatever the case may be, and if I'm going to try and kind of waste, you know, in parentheses, like in the next two years, nothing bad will happen, right? So that's the question to answer first. And then from that point, I just, just go for it. Right. Like go with Go with your gut, go with your intelligence, go with what you believe is a real problem. Have to be passionate about it. You have to really believe that the problem is a real problem and that you have the real solution for that problem. Interesting. Yeah, extremely well put. And I like the idea of suggesting to people they first question, is this right for me? Am I truly an entrepreneur? My next question is, and I ask this of everyone, what one word describes who you are. ADD. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny, but it's not. I came to realize in an early age that I have to be stimulated on a constant basis. I cannot be a single play individual. I'm losing focus. I have to keep myself, you know, interested and intrigued and motivated and busy all the time. So for me, uh, as, as far back as I can remember, I was always involved in multiple projects at the same time. So it's an attention disorder, which is also a bless, which is also an attention disorder, mm. right? So <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that knowing yourself, knowing what you're good at, willing to take risks, I think at the end of the day, it pays off. It's not easy. It's not simple, but you live very comfortably with the decisions to make. 
I appreciate that. And you're the first one that mentioned that they were ADD, by the way. <laughs> you're inquisitive. You're creative. You're always on the lookout for new ideas. And all those things are very, very positive characteristics. John, if I may, yeah. if I may, yeah. I think there is also something which is super important just to put out there. Mm-hmm. I think that when you start an idea, and I, I remember from my first ventures, I'm also kind of tend to be a perfectionist. And I had a partner years back was a very accomplished individual. And he said, Boaz, you need to understand where we are now, you need to aim for seven because you aim to 10 and we are not gonna move anywhere. So I think that one of the things that people should also appreciate, acknowledge that momentum is key. So think progress, not perfection. And many times to perfect ideas or processes, it just takes too long for a startup. You can worry about that later. So sometimes you need to aim to seven, deliver strong seven, and then improve eight and nine and 10. Focus on trying to perfect the solution on day one is not the best path and not the best momentum for it. Oh, that's very, very well put. Thanks so much for being on our series. I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. We really appreciate all your insights and wisdom. Thanks so much. John, always a pleasure. Take care. During our conversation, Boaz talked about working on Wall Street and at some point, sensing the thirst to start his own business. A feeling that at its core, he's wired to be an entrepreneur. It was about recognizing a problem and having the understanding and desire to create a solution, coupled with passion, curiosity, and commitment. In his career, Boaz not only invented new products and services, but saw in an existing company a way to fulfill an unmet need and enhance the customer experience. For example, in co-founding Hypersonic Force, he saw an opportunity to integrate technology and software that rapidly responds to customer inquiries with up-to-date information, specifications, and logistical data that provides a faster, more accurate response, thus giving his company a competitive advantage. Since too many people overlook the likelihood of failure that is often part of the journey to success, Boaz emphasized the importance of honest, introspective questioning. Am I an entrepreneur? Can I withstand the stress and the lack of transparency on what tomorrow is going to look like? Remember, potential investors want to see that you're all in, willing to take the risk, and committed to the hard work necessary to achieve success. Many thanks to Boaz Rahav for sharing his experiences and valuable insights. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki, and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Director of Professional Enrichment and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohn. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. Our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Constance Talatia and Paulina Lamanier for all their support. Until next time.